The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still waters. Thank you for joining Beside Still Waters podcast with Christian Javois. Beside Still Waters is the moment in our day when we seek stillness in God's presence, guidance from the Word of God, and grace to live by faith. This is the moment when we view horizontal living from the divine perspective. For the eyes of Jehovah run to and fro through the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of those whose heart is perfect toward him. Now here's today's message. We hope it will be a blessing. Welcome to Besides Still Waters. Thank you for joining me today as we continue our short series, When God Applies the Rules of Suffering to Himself. Our topic today, Cross-Raised Self-Raised. Now, you may have to think about the words, but uh, we are looking at Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, and the Lord Jesus' uh, commentary on cross-bearing. And so the cross is raised, lifted up, but self is raised, that is R-A-Z-E-D, brought low. What happens when God applies the rules of suffering to himself. I would remind you that our efforts to extricate ourselves from what is a God-designed spiritual paradigm is really an effort in futility when it comes to suffering in the life of a Christian. I want to remind you that suffering is a vital component in the spiritual life. It's really the spiritual static element allowing God to insert his grace, love, uh, execute his promises, and the single most circumstance affording all saints the supreme privilege of walking with God. Now, admittedly, these blessings that I've mentioned are often encased in a shell called suffering. And although suffering touches all humanity, everyone, pagan, Christian, and anything in between, it has a unique purpose for the Christian, the child of God, even as it did to the Lord Jesus himself. And he goes before us as the supreme example of what it means to suffer in the will of God. Now, in Matthew 24, I'm sorry, Matthew uh, chapter 16, at around verse 24, Jesus gives an invitation that is not putting a disciple under duress. It's an invitation to come after God, knowing beforehand the cost of discipleship. Now, people, people have often said, uh, if I knew beforehand what the cost would be to undertake a, a particular course of action, I would have never chosen it. And so cross-bearing is really a unique opportunity to experience God's grace and power and presence. It's analogous to Peter, uh, if you recall, when he stepped out of the boat in the midst of a storm and he didn't fix his eyes on 
you know, the tumultuous waves or the, the, the wind's fury, but he fixed his eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ walking on the water. So too, in a similar fashion, Jesus calls us to focus on one object in the midst of our storm. And that is, he bearing his cross. And so the invitation is clear. We are called to bear our cross and follow him. What does it mean to bear the cross? What does it mean? Now, of course, this is a, a far more complicated subject, but for our purposes, let's just uh, address it uh, from a very general level. Uh, as Peter, for example, being of sound mind, uh, saw himself walking towards Jesus in the midst of a storm upon the waters, he would clearly know as a fisherman, a seasoned fisherman, that this is an impossible task for any human being to do. And yet, the impossible was coming to pass in his, you know, he's looking at it with his very eyes. So too, the disciple is called to a unique fellowship in which that individual willingly embraces a difficult experience and uh, doing so willingly and with sound mind, knowing that this has been brought into their lives by the will of God, they are by this very experience being called into a unique fellowship a deeper experience between that person and the living God himself. And this could only be known in the sphere of suffering, trial, difficulty. In verse 25 of the same chapter, the Ordinary disciple may evaluate this invitation, this, this invitation to bear his or her cross willingly as a significant price to be paid. Now, if you will, the spiritual currency that this person hesitates to pay because they're thinking to themselves, that what might be extracted from their life, how much will be lost if they bear this cross? And this instinctive, selfish, flesh-driven, thoughtful preoccupation centers on preserving a prized possession. And what is that? His life. And we're going to expand on what this life means. What is it? What do I mean when I say preserving the life? Now, it makes no difference how beggarly or how lavish that person's life is. The key consideration is preserving what is already known. The reasoning sort of goes something like this. I know the life I have, but I don't know the life that God will give me if I don't extricate myself from this particular trial, and hence the fear of death, the death of my life, comes to the surface. 
In this invitation that Jesus gives us to bear our cross and follow him, uh, it's similar to, to, I think, what he did for Judas on that fateful night when Judas uh, uh, concocted the scheme to uh, betray the Lord Jesus. And uh, the Lord Jesus brought before him, that is Judas, and the rest of the disciples what is about to transpire, which is a betrayal. And in the same manner as he presented to Judas the consequences of what he was about to do, hadn't done it yet, he was about to do it, in that same manner, in this invitation, he brings before each of us the very thought of our hearts. And it is something like this, just as Jesus says, For whosoever shall desire to save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake shall find it. And the Lord Jesus puts his finger on the, the very core thought that all of us, at some point or the other, consider before we enter into or when we find ourselves in a, uh, a suffering-laden type of circumstance. And so at the end of the day, the person is really thinking, I want to preserve my, my life standard as I know it right now, I want that to be the status quo. And so we're brought face to face with the germ of our thinking. I want to hold on to my life as I know it. I want to preserve it from perishing. I want to preserve it from change. I want to keep it suffering free, disease free, judgment free, change free, or anything that will diminish or alter what is already known. I want to save my life and get this without excluding walking with God. So let me summarize the goal as I see it. We want to preserve the status quo and have all that God has for us. Now get that. We want to preserve the status quo and have all the blessings that God wants for us while bearing the cross. And so this kind of thinking poisons the Christian life and robs us of any vital experience of the presence of God. I want to preserve the status quo and have all that God wants for me while bearing the cross. And so Jesus, for example, in Matthew uh, 26, when he, when he uh, warns Judas, he gave Judas a very clear view to the end result of the choice he was about to make before he executed the choice. And that's important. He says, Woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed, it had been good for that man if he had not been born. So too, he says to us as his disciples and all future disciples through the centuries to come, whosoever shall desire to save his life shall lose it. If I go into this invitation wanting to preserve the status quo and have all that God uh, has for me simultaneously, I will never achieve life 
as I so desire it. The flesh, or, the, or better yet, the flesh-driven objective of bearing the cross, and I, and I emphasize preserving the status quo of his life, shall, in the end, result in the very conclusion that he thought to avoid. The loss of a life he so desired. And, and, and I want to, to really emphasize that thought. Our fleshly natures are bent on bearing the cross. We want to do the will of God. And simultaneously, we want to preserve the status quo of our lives. And that sort of thinking will result in the very conclusion that the Lord Jesus says. He shall lose it. It's analogous to, uh, if you recall, the rich man who came to Jesus and called him good master or good teacher and asked, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And of course, Jesus said to him, and I think Mark's gospel said, Jesus said to him, looking at him and loving him, and he says, go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor and come and follow me. And then we are told that he went away sorrowing because he had great possessions. So this man sought to preserve his life standard while obtaining the very thing that God wants for him. And it could not be done because the Lord Jesus asked him to perform a task that cut to the heart of his problem. He had great possessions. He couldn't part with them. He couldn't think of the poor, but he wanted eternal life. And so Jesus gives this, what I call a a counterintuitive invitation. He's aligning the life of discipleship with him, Jesus, as the central pursuit of the heart. His person, his cause, his fellowship, submission to his ideals as the only way, the only way that a disciple finds life. There is no nobler pursuit no higher ideal, no objective worthy of the sacrifice of one's life, but a day-by-day awareness of and a living in the presence of the Son of God while subjecting one's self under the authority of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the standard for the disciple's life. Let's, let's take a moment and, and, and focus on what the Lord Jesus says. In verse 24 of the same Matthew 16, he says, If anyone desires to come after me, after me. And again, he says, if he takes up his cross and follows me. And again, he says in verse 25, Whosoever shall lose his life for my sake shall find it. After me, follow me for my sake, you'll find it. The focus is really myopic. There is one object before the mind, before the eye, just as Peter in the midst of the storm. The only thing that drove this man to want to do the impossible 
was the focus on the Lord Jesus Christ walking on water. And now we come to a greater invitation, that of bearing our cross. What does that mean? What will it require of me? Jesus says, come after me, follow me for my sake. You'll find it. And so this this term, quote unquote, finding my life, appears on its surface to be counterintuitive to the way any goals are achieved. Now, when people set goals, people keep a goal, a desired objective, strictly focused before the mind, before the heart. There's a plan with step-by-step actions to execute so as to arrive at a desired outcome. But the Lord Jesus gives us insight into the way God thinks. And it is by pursuing an objective that doesn't put our life at the forefront, but it really reduces our life's objectives. It sort of puts it in the ashes, if you will, because we're being asked to pursue a different course of action, a direction that appears to result in an outcome that will lead us opposite the outcome that we want. But in fact, from the divine standpoint, this invitation, this counterintuitive path is the very action and course of action that will result in life the outcome that we're wanting to achieve. And this is the way God often thinks. He leads us by his spirit in a path that is counterintuitive, that seems to be moving away from the target. But in fact, from God's perspective, he's leading us to the target. But remember, I've often said that besides still waters is, if you will, the experience of walking with God. It's all about looking at life on the horizontal plane from the divine perspective. We have to view this invitation from the standpoint that God sees it. We are looking at a heavenly life lived on earth by faith. You know, James addresses a a similar thought in his letter to the Christians that were scattered throughout Asia when he exhorts them to do this very thing, his first chapter of his letter. He says, Do not err, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights with whom is no variation or shadow of turning. The source of the thing that we want isn't achieved by our effort. It comes from God. And the Spirit of God, by the teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ, is doing what? It's telling us how to arrive at that objective from a heavenly perspective. The death, the dying to self, the taking up of our cross, the embracing of the will of God as it appears to be in that hour is the very thing that leads us to this full life that we're looking for. The problem is we're looking in the wrong direction. For people, the ultimate pursuit 
is life. Quality experiences. I, I, I want to aggregate this term life to mean one of several or all of the above. Quality of experience. Quality experiences. A large quantity of joy-filled moments. Events filled with significance. Maybe it traveled to a new place, a goal achieved, a, a new uh, a role in, in, in a corporation or whatever. Coupled with health, uh, at least enough health, to never diminish the enjoyment of all that I have achieved. The achievement of my goals, the pursuit of my interests and hobbies, the novelty of travel, the enjoyment of physical and emotional well-being. All of this comprises life. And this is what we earnestly desire. The full package of events from which we derive one thing, satisfaction. At least as we see it. I am satisfied when I have the full package of all of these or some mixture of these events. Abraham faced, uh, or Abram at the time, but for our purposes, Abraham faced a, a similar challenge when, as you know, he was uh, given command by Jehovah to go to a land that he would show him, etc., after the death of his father, Terah. And uh, eventually he came into uh, Canaan uh, in obedience to Jehovah, I might add. Uh, but having recognized that there was a famine in the land, he went down to Egypt with a view to preserve all that he had from Canaan's famine. And as you know from um, uh, Genesis chapter 12, the matter ended rather poorly because he was expelled from Egypt. <laughs> but note this, in, in chapter 13, we are told that he, in the first verse, went up out of Egypt, he, his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him towards the south, and then later on in verse 3, and additionally, he went as far as the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai. And you know what was there? Well, the next verse tells us, to the place of the altar that he had made there at the first. And there, Abraham, or at the time, Abram called on the name of Jehovah. So, in, in a word picture, the Spirit of God caused this man's objectives to, to be reduced to ashes. <laughs> this was a cross for him. Now, he didn't know anything about you know, crucifixions, but this was in type a cross, a dying of his objectives and his plans. And all that he sought to achieve, it ended poorly. Why? Because God was in the business of bringing him back to the one thing that would have made a difference. Stay in the land in spite of the, the, the uh, famine. You call on God. You establish a walk with God. He'll take care of you providentially if you are in his will. In spite of the challenge, the famine in the land, God took care of Abraham. God took care of Abraham. He was compelled in the face of potential loss due to a famine, 
obviously the famine was allowed by and caused by God. But it was a test of faith. And he was compelled to return to that very place, the place of trial where the famine was. And there, I want to say, he found his center in calling on Jehovah. He turned his eyes away from the famine. Famine didn't go away. Away from the risk. The risk didn't go away. Away from the potential loss. That potential loss did not go away. And he fixed his eyes on the one who had called him. And he made an altar. And that was the place he met with God. There, Abraham found life. And this was clearly a a, a counterintuitive approach to living in a place that God deemed to be a place of promise. It had a famine. From the practical human horizontal point of view, it had a famine. It had risk. It had potential loss. From God's perspective, stay. I'm Jehovah. I'll take care of you. As I said, this was clearly a counterintuitive approach to living in a place that God deemed a place of promise. And the question is, why? Because to the naked eye and to man's logic, the famine spelled potential loss. Yet it was God who commanded Abraham to go to the very place and bear that cross, that potential loss, and to trust in that place of loss, his providential loving care to bring his promises to pass. So I want to, want to get some thoughts across here at, at, this, at this juncture. We need to remember that it is God who is the giver, the giver of life, the very life that we want. It's God that gives it. Every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of life. It makes no difference what the commodity is. If it comes into this universe, if it touches earth or any realm beyond, God is the giver and the doer of it. It will not happen. You and I will not achieve life any other way but the path of the will of God. Number two, the path not traveled, the cross, is laden with discovery about the ways of God. And his presence. And this is what Abraham uh, experienced. It was staying in the place of promise where he realized that God is able to. And from that point, he had some significant encounters with God. And they just kept getting uh, bigger, grander, more fuller, deeper. God began to reveal things to him. Things about the future, future people. That walk with God was deepened. Thirdly, the cross, similar to the place where Abraham set up his altar, is the sacred place. The place is the cross. This is the place where Abraham died to his perspectives, his way of living, his goals, his dreams, and made the pursuit of the holy his primary objective. Now, it took 25 years between the first time he was called to go into the land and the birth of Isaac. And if Abraham could see the full picture now, he would be amazed. In the same way, we are called to bear the cross, knowing that there is an outcome, a good, 
Fourthly, the Lord Jesus alludes to this in Matthew chapter 6 when teaching his disciples about the futility of worry. The futility of worry. And in verse 25 of that same chapter, he says, Do not be careful about your life, what you should eat, what you should drink, nor for your body, what you should put on. And then he asked the question, Is not the life more than food and the body more than raiment? And then he goes on to say at the latter end of this discourse, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Clearly counterintuitive. My friends, we are looking at life on the horizontal plane from the divine perspective. What people do is pursue what we shall eat and what we shall drink. I need to eat food. I need clothing. And we're going to do and, and perform all the actions that'll get me these things. Jesus says, I have a better way. Seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, a correct moral standing with God through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ and the objectives of his kingdom and coming. And guess what? These things that you have need of, I'll add them to you. Make my priorities your priorities and I will make your priorities my priority. So let's, let's turn the corner and sort of uh, come to the, some closing thoughts about raising the cross and raising, or if you will, <laughs> putting self to the dust. When the fleshly nature, the self, is minimized, diminished, dethroned, what happens? Peter, writing to the believers in his first letter, believers scattered throughout Asia, begins to show them the nobility of their calling, the nobility of their calling. And he refers to them, to these Christians, as elect according to the foreknowledge of God. And he says that they were sanctified by the Spirit with a view to living an obedient life. And he goes on to say that they were afforded the grace of God and the peace that comes from God. These are all heavenly blessings. And then he talks about their new birth, those begotten again to a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay, He sets before them and us the nobility of our calling in Christ. And that this, this deliverance, this salvation, as, as the generic term is used, the deliverance from sin, its penalties, and so forth, is just a blessed position to be in while we're standing here on earth. And then in addition, in that same first chapter, he goes on to make reference to a future deliverance that is clearly imminent. And he says so in verse 5, a, a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So it's just a whole lot of blessings wrapped up here. And, and Peter is setting them forth before their view and before our view. And then we now come to the process of putting self, fleshly nature, to death. And you say, well, how is that accomplished? And why is it necessary to put our fleshly fallen nature to death. Or you may ask yourself, well, why do I have to include suffering and grief and challenge and trial and, and all of this negative experience? You know, sometimes 
a thought may hinge in this, when you study the scriptures, a thought or a, a, a perspective hinges upon one word or a short phrase. And, and here's a perfect example in this first letter that Peter wrote in the first chapter. He says in, in two verses, six and seven, he says, uh, while we exalt, well, or at the, at the time that we're exalting in all the blessings that I mentioned uh, a little while ago, the blessings of this high calling, he says this, if only for a little while we are put to grief. Just that phrase, if only for a little while <laughs> we are put to grief. So I ask, why is this interval of suffering deemed necessary by God and highlighted by the Spirit of God, for example, in this letter and, of course, back in Matthew 16? Why is this necessary? Trial. Suffering. Really focuses on one element it affects one element in the spiritual life. And that element enables the Christian to transcend the gulf between heaven and earth. And that one element is faith. Faith is absolutely necessary and it is the element, the dynamic, the substance that brings heaven within reach that clarifies our vision, the vision of our hearts. It makes real the intangible substance that God promises. It confirms within us that the thing exists although our physical eyes cannot see it. Faith is the element that is strengthened in the midst of trial if we are looking to God. For example, in Hebrews 11, we have a catalog of those who walk by faith, enduring trials. And it was said of them and in verse 13 that all these died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, embraced them and confessed they were strangers and sojourners on the earth. And that's the key phrase, having seen them afar off and embraced them. That is a statement that refers to the lively, strong, healthy dynamic of faith that was operative in their lives. This faith it's the most critical element that must be developed by the work of the Spirit of God himself. That is the only way we, sitting in this foreign land called earth, can view clearly by the eyes of our hearts, an enlightened heart, what is ahead of us, what is heavenly. And it is the Spirit of God and his working that sets it forth before us in the scriptures. It is by the word of God that we are able to envision the promises that are ahead, 
we are enabled to wait on God to do a work in our lives here on earth. We are enabled to wait on God to bring to pass something that before this moment never existed on the earth. This is what faith is all about. And the Lord Jesus alludes to this in Mark 11. He says, if you say to this mountain, be plucked up and be cast into the sea, it shall be done to you. But what was he saying? He said, therefore, when you pray, believe that you receive the things that you have and it shall come to pass to you. Faith is that element that God is busy purifying. As Peter says in that first chapter, the sixth and the seventh verse, faith is being tried, tested like metal, like precious metals in the fire until the, the, the unwholesome residue can be skimmed off. Faith is the catalyst that brings or bridges the gulf between heaven and earth and brings within our grasp the sure promises of God. Or better yet, faith is the element that enables us to walk with an unseen God. And the only way, the only way that this catalyst can be effectual and effective in our lives is during and in the very experience of suffering. During that experience, self is rendered <laughs> ineffective. We can't progress in the Christian life living in the power of the flesh. It's impossible. Growth in the spiritual life will never happen if we are dependent upon the flesh. And the only way that flesh can be brought low is in the midst of trial. But in that very moment that our fleshly nature is being crucified, our faith in the Lord Jesus and his providential loving care is being strengthened. The believer is now rendered fully fit without any encumbrance to really and truly see afar off. Our election, our sanctification, the grace that we enjoy, the peace of God that we've embraced and enjoy, all of these blessings are enjoyed because of the exercise of faith and the receiving of them by faith. And Peter even alludes to that fact that we grow in our love for the Lord Jesus Christ, as he says, whom we have never seen and upon whom now we have never looked on. Here we are, we are loving a Savior we've never seen. We've never seen who Jesus is. Yet we love him. Why? Because our faith is really alive. <laughs> faith is a real catalyst, a real substance. But it is purified in the crucible of the fire of trial. Yes, my friends, we've never seen him, but we love him. And he says, but believing, you exalt with joy unspeakable and filled with glory. Faith really enables us to walk with God. And faith is strengthened, again, I repeat, and purified in and through the experience of suffering. Self must be diminished, Christ exalted. And so now, my friends, as we come to the end of this conversation and we examine our walk with God, yes, this is our moment beside still waters. This is the moment, the opportunity to ask God to strengthen our faith 
so that we might simply surrender more fully and be willing to embrace the hour of trial in whatever form it comes. God is fashioning a work in our lives that ultimately will enable us to breach the gulf between heaven and earth by, by those, as Peter says in his second letter, first chapter, three and verses 3 and 4, those great and precious promises, which are the very means by which we are able to participate in and experience God's very nature. But to do so, my friends, we must have what Peter calls that little while experience of trial. Oh, my prayer, my desire of heart today is that God will help each of us to fully trust him where we cannot trace him for his glory and our benefit and growth and ultimately for the benefit of others. Thank you for joining Beside Still Waters podcast with Christian Javois. Beside Still Waters is the quiet moment in the stillness of God's presence to receive guidance, light, and grace to live by faith. I hope you've been helped and encouraged to press on living for the glory of God. It has been a pleasure and a privilege to connect with you on this podcast. To stay connected, please follow Christian Javois on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for tuning in. And we will see you on the next podcast of Beside Still Waters.